Hello, you're listening to Alfie Moore's podcast with me, Alfie Moore. I was a police officer in the Humberside Force for 20 years before turning to stand-up, effortlessly exchanging one kind of hostile situation for another. Each week on this podcast, I'll be discussing policing matters with a very special guest and trying to show you a little bit of what actually goes on in the police force. I'll always be joined by my producer, Will. Hello, Will. Hey, Alfie. And today, my special guest is Serving Chief Inspector Julie Mead. Julie or... Jules. Mom or... Oh, God, no. Jules, no, OK, please. Jules. Welcome, Jules. So, uh, you've been a police officer with the Northamptonshire Force for how long? 27 years? Just coming up to 27 years. I joined at the tender age of 18 in 1992, so it seems like a lifetime ago. Okay, 18, 1992, okay, I'm just doing some sums here. <laughs> Great, so tell me a little bit about Northamptonshire, the police force, and how, how many cops and staff do you have? We've got um, just over 1,200 officers, so we're a relatively small force, and of course that 1,200 includes all of our senior bosses. Um, and are you class as a rural ish force? Or? Yeah, we're a county town, absolutely, we're a county town, but, um, you know, we've... We're right in the middle of England, so we've got a lot of strategic road networks which are building up all the time. We've got our new train lines that are going across the county, and of course that has massive positives when, with regards to business and the, the, and, and the economy. Um, Corby, which is uh, my favourite town, is um, love you all everywhere in Northamptonshire, but Corby's kind of where I've done the majority of my service. But that is one of the top nine expanding towns in the country and it's the only one in the top 10 outside of London. One thing I'd be really in, interested to know, how did it feel as an 18 year old woman in the police in 1992 did you say? Yeah it was um, it was interesting so I, it was still in the times where we wore skirts, we didn't get issued with trousers and bearing in mind all the protective stuff like stabbies and and spray and things like that. We didn't get back then. So I remember going to get my uniform and there's this lovely... Why weren't you allowed trousers? They didn't issue them. It for, was... For women? didn't issue them, no, not for women. And no. nobody ever asked? They said, well... Oh, we asked, yeah. but it was... Can we have trousers? Oh, no, dear. No, 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 no. no. So I was actually the first woman in Northamptonshire to be issued with a pair of trousers, but I will tell you about that. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I'm down in the stores and we've got this lovely uh, Scottish chap there who was just a bit of a legend in the force and he gave me... Um, a little wooden truncheon, and it was about six inches long. So I, I lifted it up to him. I said, really, what do you expect me to do with that? And he said, well, dear, it has to be that size so we can fit in your leather issue handbag. There you go. <laughs> so so, so uh, the, the truncheon that the male officers carried, I think that was 14 inches long from yeah. memory. You've got a six-inch long truncheon. Yep. Fitted in your own Did you have any training for the six instruction? Because I'm trying to think of, <laughs> a, I'm trying to think of a, a, an effective way to use that. And it's not well, springing it, to mind. I could have done with a trainer course on how to find it in my handbag and then like what to do with it. But, you know, I'm sure that there's suggestions out so there. So tell us about the first person to be issued with a pair of trousers. Well, yeah. See, I um, very soon in my service, about three years service, I decided I wanted to be a dog handler. And that had never happened before in Northamptonshire. A girl being a dog handler, that was just didn't happen really, really yeah the male preserve to be in charge of the, the dog section yeah yeah there's no females dog handlers yeah oh. 
So I was the first, so I went through the process and um, I went on to the dog section. So did you feel any resistance during the application? Were you encouraged to, to go for it? Um, I, I was probably protected from it, but I would imagine that at that stage they had to have some form of diversity. But I was a little bit naive to that. Um, I was still very young um, at, at that time. Um, but, you know, I had to go for the interview and we had to do a little exercise with the dog and I had to wear my skirt and all the boys were there in the trousers. And, and were you a doggy person? Yeah, well, I come from the northeast, so we kind of grew up with dogs. Okay. Yeah, uh, working dogs. So, yeah, it was uh, fab and so I'm out with my dog and I'm, I'm doing the, you know, I'm going up and over a six-foot fence in my skirt and, of course, there's a big rip, as there's going to be, and, you know... The boys at one side of the fence that I was climbing over had a bit of a giggle at my ripped skirt. So after that, I kind of said, enough's enough. I need a pair of trousers if you want me to be a dog handler. So, um, yeah, I went and demanded a pair, but they didn't have women, so I had to wear men's trousers. Well done. Yeah. Well done. That's Amazing. the first. Isn't it? Yeah. So, so you were successful. And you became the first female dog handler in Northamptonshire Police history. Yeah, that's right. Did we have equal opportunities in the early 90s in the police, or were you conscious that there was a bias towards you because you were female? I'm sure there was a policy somewhere. Um, it, was, it was different times. Um, um, it no, was different times. Not policy. I mean, how you, how you were perceived and how you, how you were trapped. Did you feel like an equal? Um, I felt like I had to work better and harder than the other people on the dog section. We're a small dog section. There was only 13 of us at the time. So I, I stood out, you know, obviously I stood out being the only girl. And being the first, it was, um, you know, some of the old school cops when I turned up at a job when there was a big pub fight, you would hear things like, mm, doesn't quite give you the same sense of safety when a little bird gets out of the van and not a big bloke. But then you let your dog do the talking and the biting. <laughs> so it, you prove yourself. And it was very hard work. Um, I was supported by some really great dog handlers, some not so great. Um, one guy at Gunnar Atkinson, still a friend today, he was absolutely fantastic. I was tutored by another guy called Pete Chisholm, again, fantastic dog handler. Um, I was given a lot of support. But, yeah, there's people out there waiting for you to fail because it was different times. It was a different generation. I, I joined in 87, and I can remember from back in training school that there was, you know, some, even the training, the, the, the way that uh, some, some of it was disrespectful towards women, I yeah. thought back then in 87 and when I got stationed to my station I remember some of the attitudes of some of the old time coppers about police women who generally you know they'd say oh they're, they're there for in case we need to search a female prisoner or in case we get a sexual assault come in and somebody's crying then we'll we'll send the police woman in uh, to help them feel better was was it was a, a sort of an attitude I remember when I, I first joined a few years before you were, I guess. But, uh, yeah, okay. But, so, you're in the dog section. How mm. long did you stop in the dog section? What was your doggy called? Geordie. Geordie, okay, of course. <laughs> so, your doggy was called Geordie. Yeah. How long did you have your doggy for? Um, for about, I was at dog hand for about eight years. German Shepherd? Yeah. Yeah. And I had a drug search dog later on once I'd kind of... drug search dog? He was a little Labrador called Paddy. Okay. Uh, he came with that name, actually. Yeah, I didn't choose that one, but, yeah, he was uh, fantastic. And where did the dogs live? They live at home with us, but in a kennel in the garden. So they're not pets. Uh, they're not part of the family. They're, they're working dogs. 
but you know you spend more time with your dog than I did with my husband really so it was um you know it's a real bond yeah absolutely so so did you all retire from the dog section at the same time yeah um I was having my I just had my second child as well so it was it just kind of the time was quite right yeah your second child live outside well, I th- do you know what? He might be going that way if he doesn't start behaving himself. But uh, no, not, not at the time, not at the time. Can you tell us any um, any adventures that you had with, with Geordie? Do you know what? It was some of the some of the best jobs that you get of being a dog handler because the buzz you get out of doing something successful with your dog that only you and that dog can do. There's no other piece of police equipment, no matter how far technology goes on, that you can... You can train to do what that dog can do. So, you know, we had some fantastic searches and tracks. Um, one that stands out for me, because you've always got a couple of jobs that you remember. Um, the, the helicopter was up and a police car had just been rammed. And the stolen car that had rammed the police car, the, the occupants had taken off across fields. Um, helicopter couldn't find them. It was throwing it down with rain. And me and the dog um, got out and we got tracked straight away. Um, so we're going through the cornfields. The corn was bigger than me. And then all of a sudden, the dog's on a long line, a tracking line, longer than a normal lead. Um, and I, he gets to this part of the, the field. I hadn't quite caught up with him. I'm still hanging on. And he's barking. So I thought, brilliant, he's found somebody. So I get to the bit where he is, and there is four people, very menacing, looking at me. And I'm looking behind me to see where my colleagues are. Um, for some backup, but of course they couldn't. They, they never keep up with you because you're going really quick with the dog, and you remember yeah. remember how unfit everybody else is when you're a dog handler. You're super fit. Um, I thought they were going to start having a go. One did, and the dog um, made robust contact with him, which was robust contact. Were the teeth involved in the robust contact? Uh, well, there might have been. Yeah. yeah, from memory, it's a long time ago. You know, mm. you forget the detail. Um, and after that, the, the others just kind of. Gave up, so me and the dog walked them back out, feeling very, very pleased with ourselves. All four of them. All four of them back out to the cops that were waiting a couple of miles away. It was good. But the helicopter had missed them because they couldn't see them because of the vegetation. It was just something that me and the dog could do. So we were very proud of that. Even my grumpy sergeant was very pleased with me that day. Good, good for you. And does does Geordie know, does he go for a certain part of their anatomy? Is that... Well, you know, we we train them to um, to bite... The arm, because you, you've seen the, the, the chasers with the yeah. dogs, and they've got the arm bars on yes. and the, the protective stuff on their arms. We, we train them to do that. But what you find in a genuine job, people are, people's arms are, are quite high up, and then they'll try and put the hands in the air to try and avoid the police dogs. They've all seen the stuff on the telly, and they think, well, it's they dog can't can't get... reach, so the, second prize is, is, is where? It's usually a buttock, if I'm being quite a frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it usually kind of... Robustly yeah. makes contact on the buttocks. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. That's nice. That's nice big fleshy part yeah. of their Yeah. Um, and I suppose the other job that kind of stands out, I hadn't been a dog handler very long, and um, a guy who clearly had issues but was um, high on drink or drugs in a kebab house, and we just happened to be driving by. You know, you never see a cop, but then actually we turn up at the right place. Doesn't At the right time doesn't happen very often, does it? And he'd just chased a lot of people out of the kebab house, but he had a very long machete on him. Wow. Now, this is back in the days when, you know, you didn't have stabbies, you didn't have your spray, you didn't have tears, none of that sort of just stuff. Just Just my six-inch baton, <laughs> but I had, I had my shark on the leash as well. So um, I was with another colleague, and he got one of those little round shields out, and I had the dog. And it was one of the dog's first jobs, so it was 
my dog came from, um, he'd failed to be a guide dog for the blind. So he was a very soft, loving dog. He was just so sweet. The hardest thing to train him was to get him to bite. So it was like, well, let's, let's hope he, he does it. But um, he got caught up in the moment as well. And, you know, another robust, robust contact. And he took him out, took out the, the knife so he could um, get this guy under control. And then he was arrested. Everyone was safe. Happy ending. But, right. yeah, so it was amazing. good. So when you say he took him out... Does he go for the arm that's got the machete? Is he did on that occasion, yeah, yeah. I think that was just, he was right-handed, so the dog just latched onto the nearest object that was being waved at him. So, yeah, he, um, he caught hold of him, which distracted him long enough for us to, to do what we needed to do. And now, of course, we've got Finn's Law coming in, haven't we? Yeah, which how is, good is that? Which is uh, extra penalties for, for people that uh, injure emergency service Animals. Yeah, absolutely so. right. Did you go out with both dogs? What was your other dog called? Sorry. Paddy. Paddy. So, yeah. so you drove around with both dogs in case yep. they needed a, a, a drugs dog or a sniffer yep. dog. Uh, oh, is that how it works? You have yeah. both. Both. So, so when uh, when Jordy's facing the violent, is Paddy in the back like just? He's cheering him, him on, cheering him, him on, him some yeah. through the cage. Come on, go, Jordy, go. But you know, it was it was great. I mean, it, this was um, very different times. So, you know, I'd be out on night shifts um, with the dogs. But there was a ca- this kind of a cage behind you where both dogs sit. They've both got separate compartments in it, but it's a big cage. So there's a little hatch that you can open. Um, so they've got access to the front of the car if you want them to. Mm-hmm. So Georgie and I um, used to drive along on night shift. And on night shift, I used to keep that open. So he, he used to sit with his head on my shoulder. So we'd be, we'd be driving along looking for the bad guys and... If I stopped a car because I was on my own, and again, I was a lot younger and a lot smaller and thinner back in the day, and I used to keep the window of the van open as well. So if I got out to check somebody, and he, he just knew he was watching me. Everywhere I walked, he was watching me. So again, one night we, we stopped a guy who was wanted on warrant, and he got out of the car. Clearly, he was trying to you know, blag his way out of it. But then he'd, he'd seen a little woman get out of the car on her own, and he's kind of mm-hmm. not noticed that it's a dog van because, you know, he wouldn't. It hasn't got police dogs written all over it in them days. It just looked like any other small police family. Really. I fancy this a bit. I'll be all right. Yeah, here. yeah. He was, he was thinking, so he got a bit leery, started kind of towering over me. But, um, you know, the dog straight out the window. Mm. And, um, robust. Yeah, ro- very robust. Very <laughs> robust. But, and, um, yeah. And, and did he manage to find, because I've, I've helped dog handlers train as well, and, and I've been daft enough, naive enough, to fall for it when they've said, oh, come and help give my dog some exercise, will you? And then they've passed me this sleeve and said, just put that on and run over there. <laughs> and did, did, did you always manage to find people daft enough to, to put that sleeve protector on and run? Well, firstly, two comments on that. On your part, schoolboy error. Yeah. <laughs> and secondly, that's how I met my husband. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. he was um, a student officer when I was a dog handler. And... Um, He'd never, you know, he was impressed by the, the dog handlers, you know, as you are when you're a student officer. And I thought, oh, okay, quite like this chap. And uh, would you like to come out and see a little bit of dog training? Just put that sleeve on, run that way. If you survive, I'll marry you. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So um, I think it's... Because the force, I can remember the force. The, 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 the dog, in my case, completely took off in the air. All, and... and the force was so great that it just knocked me face first, straight to the floor. It's a real technique to stay on your feet when the dog's um, coming at you. I mean, obviously, we all had to take turns for each other's dogs, and particularly if you've got an older, more experienced dog, 
it will take you off your feet. And again, being a, a smaller woman who was not weighing very much at the time, it's a real technique to stay on your feet. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, we, we've all we've all been there. So, so just sorry, I'm ignorant about these things, but are you are you sort of deployed quite randomly? If, the, if there's not a specialist incident that you're called to, are you just sort of on a beat somewhere, but with your with your dog? Yeah, I mean. It, it, at any one time in Northamptonshire, there'd only be, in, back in those days, two dogs on, one at either side of the county. And we're a, we're a big county. There's a lot of rural parts to it as well as the, the towns that we've got. So, yeah, you could be you could be called to any jobs like any other officer to back up. Um, if they're going to a violent domestic, you kind of take yourself to, to the area just to make sure you could support them because at different times they didn't have all the equipment we've got now as well. And you'd want to be there for your colleagues. So, you know, you would be doing what everybody else is doing, but you'd have a furry friend to help you. what would a typical job for Paddy be? Paddy, um, he was um, fantastic. Um, When I was really lucky, when a a colleague of mine retired from the dog section, he had this fully trained, super-duper Labrador. He was fully trained, so that was kind of a result for me. So I kind of adopted Paddy into my little pack, if you like. And, um, yeah, we would go along to all the drug search jobs, so some really kind of good examples, because Paddy was absolutely superb. We, would, uh, we went along to a house that we thought was a dealer's house, and the team were struggling to find anything. We couldn't find anything there, but we'd had really good information that there was loads and loads of stuff there, so it's really unusual. So the, the way that they'll tell you that they found something is that they go bonkers, really. They, they kind of scratch, they jump up and down, they get all excited. Because you train them, it's around fun so they, you know, if they find that smell, that means they're going to get to play with their mom, me, and a tennis ball, because that's what they're searching for. In their heads, they're just searching for that toy that they're going to play with, whatever that may be. So uh, we were in the house, and we're, we're running around, and he's scratching at this wall, and it's just a wall. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? You're scratching at a blank wall, so I'm thinking, is there something in the architrave? So I'm having a look, there's nothing there. And as it turned out... The dog was absolutely right. When we dug into it, it was literally a fake wall, and behind it was another room that was literally full of drugs. It was fantastic. He's found drugs buried in the garden, literally buried feet under um, the ground. So did it matter whether it it was cannabis or Class A or whatever drugs? He, He could find anything. Obviously, cannabis smells stronger than anything else, so they'll find the tiniest of tiny amounts. Um, but other drugs, um, that, yeah, they'll find they find any drugs, any na- I say natural drugs, anything that's not kind of chemical, LSD yeah. based. They'll they'll find anything. He's even, I mean, some strange places have found it in, in a vegetable rack in a scraped out turnip. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, lots of good hiding place for heroin. But uh, you know, the, the dog got found that um, in curtain. In, that the seams and the hems of curtains, in mattresses, secret rooms, you know, you name it, they'll find it there. But the dogs will also search vehicles as well because there's lots of hidey halls in dashboards and um, engines. Mm -hmm. So that's why we go for the smaller dogs because they're more agile and can move around small areas, whether that's an air and cupboard, a a car, um, and they'll, they'll find it for you. They're just amazing. That's great. Yeah, so things that, you know, you know, your regular cop with our regular noses aren't going to find, that's kind of an example of the stuff that only the dogs can do. Now, I've never seen the technology out there that can sniff out a secret room or heroin hidden in a turnip, but our dogs are still doing that for us. <laughs> I don't know what's worse, a heroin or the turnip. I, I hate turnips. <laughs> so, it's time for our 
quick response round. Did oh, we gosh. warn you about any of these? Oh, I'm not sure. Quick response. Okay, now you've been a response officer. Yep. This should be a doddle then. Oh, crikey. Are you ready? Go ahead. Okay, no pressure. What's your takeaway choice? Chinese. Chinese. Proudest moment in the force? Winning a Tilly Award. Winning a Tilly Award, which is a, a neighbourhood project? Yep. Successful neighbourhood problem-solving project. That's right. Who would you play in a cop show? Oh, my goodness. Um, Juliet Bravo. Juliet Bravo. Oh, you're going back a bit there, mm. aren't you? I think I know your answer to this one. Oh, go on then. What's your favourite piece of police protective equipment? Oh, my dog, without a doubt. I thought you'd say Yeah. Geordie. Geordie. Okay. Can you think of anything that you would criminalise that currently is not a crime? Yes. Builders building new housing estates that only put parking for one car in front of a house because the majority of neighbourhood disputes and calls that we get are around parking. So we have two-car families now, if not three, if you've got teenagers, and parking is a nightmare. So new law would be you have to have parking, a double garage for every house and parking for at least two cars out the front, and the roads need to be wide enough not to be able to block them with parked cars. So... One of the things we try to do in this podcast is to try and understand what the day-to-day life of being a police officer is like, to find out just how much it's really like line of duty. Tell me, typical day, at the office for Chief Inspector Julie Mead, what, what does it look like? Well, you know, my previous life was probably more exciting, but um, the things that I do now is we'll have our... So you'll get to work at... <sighs> Crikey, I was there at six o'clock this morning... You are um, mad keen, aren't you? You are keen. I love my job. It's you know I, I feel really lucky to be doing what I'm doing. Um, but it, it Have takes. Have you kept this enthusiasm for 27 years and you've never ground it down? Do you know what? I'm, I'm like everybody else. I've had moments where it, you know, you don't want to come to work and you just think, oh God, not again. But they're few and far between, so I count myself very lucky. But. You know, I got to work at 6 o'clock today. I look at all of the um, my areas of business on our overnight crime to see what's been going on. So from domestic abuse to online sex offenders to uh, mental health, everything that comes under my thematic lead, because then at 9 o'clock we have to... So you, work, you currently work in the public... Public protect- protection, yeah. Okay, and that incorporates what, what you've just said, mental That's, health... Mental domestic health, violence. domestic violence, online sex offences, so online really heavy files. stuff. Really heavy stuff. Yeah, and I'm trying to. Th- I've missed one. General sex offenders. Okay. Yeah. So um, Easy that's. To miss those. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few of them. Um, but that's the adult side of business. Then I've got a colleague who looks after the child side of business, which is child protection. Um, uh, it's called Rise. It's online, uh, sorry, it's child sexual exploitation team, look after missing people and our multi-agency support hub, which is our MASH unit. So there's kind of two elements to public protection. I have the adult side, my colleague has the, the child side. What I'd really like to talk about, Jules, is your police negotiation work. Yeah. How long have you been doing that? I've been a negotiator now for just over 10 years. So what does that mean then? What, what do you do? Well, it's an extra to my day job, so it's not part of my role. you've got a quiet life, haven't you? So you need something <laughs> to stop getting bored, don't you? Yeah, I like to keep it real. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a negotiator. I have been for 10 years, and that's on top of 
my day job in public protection. So when I'm on call, I'm on call for 24 hours at a time, which can be for a couple of days or for a week. It, it really just depends. Um, I do that with, a, I think there's about 15 of us now in the force negotiators, so we're on call an awful lot. And so do you go out on your own? Or? Um, negotiators go out in threes, really, or at least pairs. Um, but, yeah, we go to a variety of jobs, but most of it is crisis work. So when somebody gets to that point where, you know, they've had more than a bad day at the office and they just want to end it or they it gets into a siege situation, then those type of jobs tend to be the most common. Okay, so, so what would that typically look like? What would a, a typical call-out look like? Um, it can be anything. It can be... Uh, I've had guys on roofs throwing roof tiles at me. Um, I've had guys on the side of bridges. Railway bridges are really popular, railway lines. Um, people in crisis who want to end it all. Who so you presumably need to get close enough in order to communicate to speak to them? Yeah, but experience tells you that close enough is a safe distance. Okay. And I guess, like, a lot of this is like... You know, obviously, I've... I've I do stand up now, but I've, I've been a police officer for a lot of years, and there's so many similarities. And one of the big ones is making a connection with people quickly. If I go on stage and I can't make a connection with the audience, I'm dead in the water. <laughs> and I guess negotiation, something like that, in in a really sort of stressful situation, you have to make a connection very quickly with a stranger. So is that something you, you're naturally good at, or have, is that a learned thing? You tell me, are we, are we bonding? Are we, are we bonding well here? Yeah, you know, you're, you're very easy to talk to and likeable, yeah. I guess, which is really important, isn't it, to, to be likeable. You don't want some grumpy old bugger turning up, you know, as a negotiator in a crisis situation. I think it's really just about being human, isn't it? You know, I'm, I wouldn't, I've, I've always kind of policed, as in, I don't think people are better than me or worse than me. They're just people. People are people. And if I'm going to talk to somebody, whether that's helping them with burglary or a domestic abuse victim or that person that's on the top of the car park wanting to, to jump off. It's just about being human and just listening and listening to hear, not listening to respond. It's really important to, um, to let people talk and get over what they're thinking and just to be a human being with them. In my 10 years, there's only been twice where I've thought somebody was genuinely wanting to die, somebody who genuinely didn't want to be around anymore I think a lot of the time it's it's people who are just screaming for I don't know what to do next and I'm in crisis I've had a loss I don't really know what to do now and I'm, I just need somebody but on two occasions um, I've genuinely thought they meant it and it's quite scary it's, it's a bit of a responsibility and this guy was on top of a car park and surprisingly the four hours I was there he didn't say a word to me he'd had a really hard time he, um, he genuinely wanted to help people. He was clearly suffering with mental health and he'd been stopped helping people as he wanted to. And for him, that was his, that was his sole purpose. So we had the whole circus there. We had EMAS there. Um, we oh, had yeah. our cordons. Uh, sorry, the ambulance. Okay. East Midlands Ambulance Service. So everybody was there. And the lady from EMAS told me that she actually knew this chap. She'd worked in a charity with him and what a lovely chap he was. So she told me a little bit about him, which was good. So I was up there trying to talk to him and trying to make a connection with him for about four hours. He didn't say a word. And then he said... That must be tough. 
It's tough. Yeah, that, that's probably the worst sort of negotiation. When somebody's swearing at you and calling you nasty names, you can... And when you say this to or three of you, are you taking it in turns to spell each other no. through that process? If, if you want to make a connection with somebody, it's got to be you and them. Right. Uh, the other person is there to make sure you don't get too close and do something stupid or and just to feed you information if, if you need it. So, um, yeah, he was he didn't speak to me, but then he put his backpack on and he sat on the edge of the car park and he's counting down. And I'm thinking, I'm really, he's going to go. He's absolutely going to go. If I grab him, he's going to take me with him, so I can't do that. And my number two is holding me back because I'm trying to, the instinct is you want to save life. So out of nowhere, out of absolutely nowhere, I just said to him, God doesn't think it's your time now. And I don't know where it came from because I respect faith, but I'm not a person of faith myself. And he stopped dead. It stopped him dead. He got down to about four in the countdown. He said, why did you say that? And I said, that lady down there from Emas, she, she knows you and she spoke very highly of you. And I said, if God had wanted you to go tonight, he wouldn't have sent her. She could have been on any shift in any area of the East Midlands region, but she's here tonight because God sent her. And he said, do you really think so? And I went, yeah, absolutely. And then I had him down within 20 minutes. I didn't know that he was, he had a lot of faith. I just had to take a punt at it. And I tell that story when I'm training street pastors to to do what they do. And they say to me, it's divine intervention. I'm not sure about that. I think it was a stroke of luck. But actually, I think it saved that man's life. I don't know where it came from to this day, but it was just That's an absolute great, stroke of luck. Because in, in those situations, even though it might be four hours or whatever given a time, in those situations... Do you think that's, that, that people are, are always going to jump sometimes and they're just building themselves up to a point where it's going to happen and, and nothing you can say can stop that? Do you think that's the case sometimes? Um, I mean, you've got to believe that to keep saying, I should think, yourself. I think we can only do what we can do and I think we, we can try very hard. And like I say, there's two incidents where I've thought it's actually going to happen and that was one of them. And... That was a happy ending. Another one, the chap, we talked, I managed, we managed to talk him down um, and gave him a couple of extra days, but he took his life later, which again is is quite hard going. So you, you've got to keep yourself, you've got to compartmentalise it because you can't take it home with you because I need to go home and, and keep smiling and be a mom and be a wife and I need to come to work and, and be that leader. So you've got to compartmentalise the, the sadder element of our, of our business. And does that take a while to learn the skill to do that, do you think? I think you've got to have it in you to start with. I don't think you can come into this job and have things that weigh on you all the time and carry it and carry that baggage with you because I don't think you're lasting it. You see so many dreadful things. You, you, you're involved in so many horrible things. Um, but you've got to balance that against the, the, the great stuff that you can do, the, the impact that you can have on um, a person suffering with dementia by having that positive intervention that young person who's on that crossroads in the life of, of either going to prison or you can do something to help them so you've got to balance the bad times out with the actual positive impact that you can have in in the public in in, in the community and i think policing is one of those unique um, yeah. areas where you can actually genuinely influence people and it's important community just like you say it's not your husband's fault and it's not your kid's fault for, yeah. you know so if you go home and have a a bad day because you've had a bad day you, you, you take it home with you it's 
it's not fair on, on them either, is it? Definitely not. And that's where you've, you've got to have that balance. If you could do one thing to improve the police service today, what would you do? I would have a wider organisation or wider hubs that actually work, which didn't just involve police officers, but we, we would be in a massive unit or a massive organisation that had social care, that had fire, that had mental health. So we were all working together for the same aim. So all the bureaucracy that stops us doing that, all of the, oh, we can't because that threshold isn't met, we can't give that person mental health support, or we can't pick them up because we haven't got enough ambulances. I would like us to be all working together in a massive unit where the bureaucracy's gone, the financial implications are gone, and we can all just work for the greater good of the community. If you were a politician, I would vote for you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> You've risen above the inequalities in policing. You're a pioneer the first ever North Ants female dog handler. You're a chief inspector, so that's three ranks up from a regular police constable. Not only do you have an extremely stressful role investigating and risk managing sex offenders, on top of that, you've told us that you volunteer to be an on-call police negotiator. I know you're also an advocate of mental health. The list goes on. How do you manage your own mental health? How do you manage to to find that work-life balance and to, to go home and be a normal mum? I work very hard when I'm at work. Um, I do a lot of hours when I'm at work. Um, I'm dyslexic as well, which makes things... takes me a little bit longer to read reports and everything than other people do. But actually, that's an advantage because it also makes you look at things differently and more creatively. So the balance for me is work hard when I'm here, do lots of hours, get the job done, but when I'm at home, turn the BlackBerry off, turn the laptop off, and don't be tempted to turn it on. Um, spend time with the family. Um, married an understanding husband. God love him. Um, you know, we're still happy together after 21 years. So some, I must do something right in the work-life balance. And we bought a hot tub. And I go home. He calls it the talkie tub. We sit there because you can't take gadgets in there. You can't take your phone. We sit there. We chat. We look at the stars. Talk about our day. Talk about the family. And just switch off and relax. Him, you and Geordie sat in the hot tub <laughs> with a glass of Prosecco. I cannot think of a better role model for the young emergency service cadets. Jules, you're an inspiration. Oh, bless you. That's Thank very kind. Thank you so much. Uh, to finish with, we have a time trial, though. It's another test this to finish with. We end with our guest reading the rights as fast as possible. So the caution, Jules. Uh, okay. I'd like to thank... Are you ready? Do you need some time to think about the... Has it been a while? No. No, it's not been a while, of course. No, you're too hands on, aren't you? I don't know any chief inspectors that still arrest people, but I know that you will. On a night, I'd still do night as well. You probably arrested on the way to work this morning at quarter to six. <laughs> no, I'm not that keen. Um, but we, um, I still do, um, we all have to do our night safe, the pubs and club operations. So, yeah, so I still get a little bit hands on. Okay, great. So, I'd like to thank my guest this week, Chief Inspector Julie Mead. This has been a Black Dog television production. I've been Alfie Moore. And thank you for listening. Take it away, Jules. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence. You do not mention when questions the mint which you later align in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. 6.03 seconds. You are leading. We'll put you up on the chart. <laughs> Just like Top Gear, this. Only the presenters are much nicer. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jules. Thank you. It's been thank lovely. You. That's good, Dan. That.